With our History of History channel, today we talk about the surprising success of stories about the past on television and the flattening trend of niche cable networks in the late 2000s. All up next on... The following program is brought to you in living color. As early as 1923, David Sarnoff recognized the possibility of developing a television system. This is the dimension of imagination. Oh, yeah! Now I remember! It's Inside the Box, the TV history podcast. Hello out there in podcast land, and welcome to another exciting episode of Inside the Box, another historical episode of Inside the Box. I'm Andrew Salvati, and with me today are a full ship's compliment to Steve Voorhees and Jonathan Bullinger. Jonathan, how you doing over there? I'm good. Glad to be here. Great. And Steve, how's it going? Great. How are you, Andrew? All right, good. No, uh, no one asks the host how they're doing. You ever notice that? I think we do here. I think we keep it light and easy, right? Or do we I'm not? Try. Uh, well... <laughs> I, I just don't care, Steve. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> nice. So today I want to talk about a subject that's uh, very close and personal to me. As I may have mentioned somewhere in our previous episodes, my own academic work centers on historical representation in a number of media formats, but particularly uh, television. So I thought maybe we could do an episode on the History Channel. Uh, it's something that I think I can get Jonathan interested in. Steve, however, I'm not really quite sure if this is your thing. Uh, no, I would say, well, I think where you and I probably uh, have a split is that I'm much more into the technical and political economy of mm-hmm. these networks. Yeah. Um, technical meaning the, the technologies of how they distribute uh, and and the programming decision making. So I think we'll cross paths today. But yeah. while you're much more focused on the historical uh, aspect yeah. of the content of programming, I would imagine that I'm much yeah. more interested in uh, who's who's paying for it, who's distributing it, and actually, we're going to tend a little bit more to that today. So, oh, um, yeah, let's uh, throw some stuff at the wall and see if it sticks. Awesome. Uh, so, in any event, uh, there's not, at least to my knowledge, a definitive history of the History Channel out there. One that kind of takes the critical perspective that we like to take on this show. Could be wrong. Uh, audience, please correct me if you know of something out there like this. Uh, I'm hoping that we can get such a conversation started here today, however, and who knows, maybe somebody out there in our listening audience has worked for history before, knows somebody who does, uh, and would like to talk to us and help us craft a more insightful examination of the network, which has become something of a ratings powerhouse in recent years, uh, much to my delight as a researcher. So today, History, uh, which is no longer the History Channel, but it's just history uh, without the the or the channel. Uh, But today it's received by some 81% of American homes. Uh, It's available in Canada, Europe, Australia, the Middle East, Africa, India, and Latin America. There was a time there when it was trying to, the History Channel was trying to make some inroads into Scandinavia, but I believe Scandinavia came up with their own kind of version of the History Channel. But in any event, it's uh, available all over the world. Uh, History has spawned a number of subsidiary networks, including Military History, History en Español, History UK, a number of international channels, as I've kind of been hinting at. And at one point, H2, which was formerly History International and which has now in 2016, uh, pardon for dating this show, has become uh, Viceland. A&E Network, which is the parent of the History Channel, owns a, I believe, 10% stake in Vice Media and has flipped H2 around to Viceland, which... um, 
pretty good network on its own. I don't know if you guys have watched it at all, but uh, it's pretty good. But anyway, history is the focus today. So as we'll discuss a little bit later in the show, over the past few years, history has pivoted from the documentaries that had once been its staple to producing scripted dramas like Vikings and the 2016 remake of Roots. And on the other hand, it has been programming a lot of original reality programs such as the highly rated spin-off machine Pawn Stars, uh, Ice Road Truckers, which was one of the, the first iterations, uh, Axemen, and Swamp People. Uh, <laughs> and all of these have contributed to what some would argue as the dehistoricizing of the History Channel, uh, which itself has kind of led to this ironic and bemused criticism, which we'll talk about a little bit later, and maybe we'll uh, try a hand at some of our own. The dehistorization, I think I am interested in, because after we just talked about where uh, you, Andrew, and I probably split roads, I think there is a common ground here because I've always been fascinating at how these networks can prop up. They have 24 hours to fill, mm-hmm. seven days a week, 365 yeah. a year. And I wonder, uh, you know, in the cable explosion of the 90s when History Channel appeared, how much forethought did they give to how much content we have to continue right. producing right. something that is going to be commercially sustainable. So here we fall into the trap of commercials, mm-hmm. meaning you need ratings, right, in order right. to fund this. Uh, and also the fact that you have so much time to fill. And I can't help but go back to the 80s when if you uh, remember in the early 80s at, at Cable's, we'll call it just birth for lack of a better term, when it was beginning to expand, A&E would share time with a Nickelodeon. So Nickelodeon yeah, would yeah. go off the air at 8 p.m. and A&E would come on for 12 hours or until 6 a.m. and then it would go back right. to kids programming. And it wasn't uh, uncommon to have networks sharing space. We see Cartoon Network share with Adult Swim. And Adult Swim is considered its own cable network, especially when it comes to the ratings. So I, uh, I'm just kind of you know fascinated that they thought that a History Channel 24 hours a day, seven days a week and so forth yeah. would have enough content. And that's why I'm not really surprised that the cheap reality programming has creeped in. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we'll turn back to this a little bit later, but I mean, this dehistorization, um, as I'm calling it, happened in the late 2000s. And in that context of cable television, a lot of other cable networks were sort of doing something like that. Uh, that is to say, they were becoming less a niche uh, programming outlet as they were maybe once conceived in the 90s and early 2000s. And kind of what I like to call is the great flattening of cable television networks where, you know, I, I see this, you know, with USA and Bravo and Sci-Fi, which are... Sci-fi more particularly, which is maybe less kind of sci-fi oriented. Um, I mean, it still has, you know, Sharknado and monster movies like that. But, (laughs) you know, there's more of an incorporation of reality programming, which is cheaper, uh, which we've said many times on this show. Do you think cost and just the amount of time being filled as mutually exclusive? Or do you think the two are No, I mean, they both both definitely inform each other. I mean, like, as you're saying, you have 24 hours a day to fill seven days a week. Always. So, you know, you're always looking for shortcuts, like, you know, sci-fi in particular. Every time there's a holiday, they program it up with old Twilight Zone episodes. Um, They put on cheap B sci-fi and horror movies on overnight to fill up all that time. And then they sell uh, early morning time out to paid programming. Right. The the only reason I ask that question is if you see historical content not delivering the ratings that is then needed for commercial income – uh, and rather that it's not so much about filling time, but that 
they tried to do something highbrow. Mm-hmm. It didn't work, and they said, "All right, the audience wins. Let's give them some reality programming." Do you, do you see that as being more of the case with history than? Maybe other cable networks. I mean, I, I think it's more jarring on the History Network, uh, the History Channel, which used to be, you know, black and white documentaries. Sure. Which, you know, as you're saying, there's only so much mileage you can probably get out of those. Uh, and then with the greater turn towards this sort of light or reality, you know, television in the late 2000s, uh, I think History saw that trend and and wanted to get in on it. And we'll talk a little bit more about why that may have been ownership. Uh, in I'm a little sure bit. comes. Into, it comes yeah, into yeah, it, it will. We'll, we'll talk about that in a bit. So before we get too far ahead of ourselves, uh, let's take it back to the mid-1990s when History Channel was just first coming into being. So in 1993, the A&E Network, which is a joint venture between uh, the Disney ABC television group and the Hearst Corporation, uh, about 10 years old at that point, began to explore the possibilities of a separate all-history cable channel. Spurring A&E's interest had been the recent success of its turn towards documentary programming, the centerpiece of which was a reboot of the biography series that originally aired in the 1960s and has since become its own network. And so A&E set about hiring historical consultants and advisors and organizing a dedicated production company for the new venture, which would, they hoped, capitalize on the popularity of biography and A&E's other documentary programming that seemed to be doing so well. To supply a reservoir of content, A&E acquired a substantial documentary library from the Lou Rada Productions, uh, which had been a longtime producer of documentary uh, films and television series for A&E. And they also purchased uh, long-term rights to the documentary archives of Hearst Entertainment, which is a subsidiary of A&E's parent Hearst Corporation. So immediately in kind of creating this historical uh, network of documentaries, they purchased these two archives, or at least access to these two archives. So here you see something that um, we've talked about in other shows to some extent is that uh, the archive itself is something that is newly monetized and newly broadcast. So we have all of this material out there uh, just sitting in a library and we're going to purchase it and put it on the air. Uh, and incidentally, uh, this kind of intersects with some of my own work, uh, which is on history programming of an earlier era in the 1950s. And I'm talking about things like uh, the TV picturization of Eisenhower's or memoir crusade in Europe and NBC's victory at sea which i believe you know a lot of our audience members uh, will will remember or at least you know have heard the name these two programs crusade in Europe and victory at sea were cobbled together from film archives from the second world war whether they were news reel archives or they were captured enemy uh, german or japanese footage or they're from the us army's archive itself so the idea of putting together an archive of old footage for historical programming is something that it was actually at the beginning of the genre itself, at least on television. So this kind of monetization or rebroadcasting of archival material. Uh, so to get back to A&E and the genesis of the History Channel, by way of conducting market research, A&E also uh, sponsored a special Gallup poll, which I thought was kind of interesting, in March of 1994. Uh, and they asked Americans, among other things, what medium they received most of their information about history. Uh, and it turned out that 21% actually of the respondents said that they received their information about history from television, and 23% answered that they uh, received their information about history from books other than 
than textbooks. So, you know, 21%, you know, that's not insignificant amount uh, of, of folks who turn to television for information about history. And another one of the questions that this uh, Gallup poll asked is whether uh, respondents felt that television had actually done enough to promote interest in history. And this is this is astounding to me. 67% of respondents said that television had done too little to promote an interest uh, in history. So here we have this idea, this longstanding idea that American television had some sense of public obligation for uh, informative or educational programming. And the, the kind of ire that it hadn't was coming out in the context of this poll saying that, you know, clear majority of Americans thought that, uh, at least in terms of history, television could be doing more. So in response to this perceived demand, the History Channel was launched at 7 p.m. January 1st, 1995, under the slogan, All of History, All in One Place. Keying into the evident appetite among American audiences for thoughtful, informative programming on TV, Charles Maday, who was the vice president for programming uh, for A&E and the History Channel, proclaimed that the new network would provide, quote, viewer-friendly, original historical programming that stimulates the mind and creates a level of historical awareness in an entertaining and informative way, end quote. Where you see the passing of time. Three crowds in St. Peter's Square praying like mad for the Pope's life. Where moments refuse to die. This is a momentous hour in world history. This is the invasion of Hitler's Europe. And where victory lives on. Plenty of girls are being kissed by plenty of boys they don't know, and they do not care. You can love it, hate it, embrace it, or turn away. Lennon was shot to death late last night outside his apartment building. But it is a past we all share. Come on out here and give me a salute. Big baby salute. This is where yesterday has a home. Where we wonder what it was like back then. Go forward, knights in safety. And not too long ago. His spirit must live on. It's where history has its place and where the past comes alive. The History Channel. Initially, the network's primetime programming included Year by Year, which was a review of Universal news, newsreels. So again, kind of capitalizing on a pre-existing archive of uh, documentary and newsreel footage. Another was History Alive, which featured... Uh, again, pre-produced historical documentary films. Then there was Movies in Time, again capitalizing on pre-produced movies that were set in a historical period. And this one was interesting because it kind of spoke to the tensions between uh, Hollywood or Hollywood's version of history and historical facts. What Movies in Time would do would be to invite a guest professional historian on to discuss with the host of the show where, you know, the movie under consideration maybe strayed from historical facts, why they might have you know, the producers may have made those decisions, uh, et cetera. So kind of really interesting, but all, again, uh, relying on pre-produced uh, film, pre-produced documentary, and newsreels. But there were original productions, too, among which were The Secret Service, uh, which was a show about the Secret Service. Then there was Most Decorated, which was a show about war and soldiers in the past. Uh, Nautilus, about the history of submarines. And then Modern Marvels, which, of course, uh, has become a staple of the History Channel and uh, its, its uh, associated networks and has been through 19 seasons and, of course, countless reruns. Uh, and it became a network standard. 
And there were, of course, a plenitude of old documentaries and films and series about World War II specifically, the repetition of which earned the History Channel the nickname The Hitler Channel, uh, which we probably all remember from, you know, the mid-90s. But for what it's worth, I thought I wanted to note uh, for the record that the epithet The Hitler Channel had actually been first applied to A&E, which itself had become somewhat infamous in the industry for programming what some felt to be an excessive amount of World War II programming. So this idea of the Hitler Channel actually predated the History Channel. So really, it's it's A and E's fault. But you know, again, going back to the back to the old old thing, why is so much? history on television or so much documentary on television about World War II, um, you know, my response to that has always been because there's so much available footage of it just hanging out in one archive or another. So, Jonathan, how, how have you approached this, this idea of uh, World War II kind of being on all the time, either in television, in film? What is the fascination here? Well, I mean, I think you and I have talked about this off air quite a bit, and it's, it's certainly not our ideas. Other people have talked about this, but, you know, it's the last great war, or good war. Uh, it's pretty easy to divide between the good guys and the bad guys. And, of course, the bad guys, um, you know, uh, pursued unspeakable evils, and so it all seems seems good. Um, there's also an element that a lot of dudes uh, who are into war like, much like a sports fan, which is there's lots of stats and technical mm. specifications that you can get into about gear and weapons and tanks and, and vehicles and all this stuff in uniforms and insignias and all this sort of stuff. So a lot of that sort of works together to make it uh, a fascinating topic. And as you said... Um, there was so much documented during the war, so there's a ton of footage available to it. Um, it was also truly a world war, so it's not like you can exhaust the different experiences of war. Uh, even if you learn everything about, I don't know, the Connecticut uh, experience of sending boys to war, you have all the other states, plus all the other countries, plus multiple years, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a, it's a huge topic. I would just want to jump in real quick and say, it's interesting with A&E, which is, I think, A&E starting, I believe, in 1987, um, you know, it really was trying to almost be like a commercial version of PBS or as close mm-hmm. to it as it could be. And so it's all very highbrow and and sort of cultured. Um, but then you sort of start to get to this point where that sort of culture goes into like a greatest hits or maybe a sort of feel-good nationalism, perhaps. Mm. Um, or at least a, uh, a a very dramatized version of history, which is biography. You know, oh, interesting. Oh, and he did that. Oh, and then, you know, men of history and then celebrities, etc. So I think it's, I don't think it's that far of a stretch to understand how it started with such high ambitions, i.e. like a PBS, that maybe some things would be pro-war, some things would be anti-war, some things would be about men of history, etc., different shades of perspectives and then sort of easily sort of centering on a sweet spot of a, of a larger demographic who go like, I would just like to learn about all the great tanks of world mm-hmm. war two. Cause it's, it's, as you've talked about a lot, like, like history can be very easy if it's just like facts. If it's just like right. there were 22 rivets in this panel, you know, bullets were weighed this much, uh, uh uniforms were made of this material yeah, yeah. and it could stop a bullet up to this many inches, you know, 
Like that's history and that's important. We should know those details, but it's a very shallow form of mm -hmm. history, at least in my perspective. To me, while I may not be a big fan of, okay, A&E's original intentions somewhat quickly went downhill and transformed. Mm -hmm. And then as you started with now became keeping up with the Joneses. Okay. If the other channel is doing ice road truckers, we got to do our version. If they're going to do it, we better do mm -hmm. it. Blah, blah, blah. Um, but it makes sense to me. I mean, I think that is most people's type of history, right? Um, uh, and and there's also an expansion agreed there. Like, well, we'll do the mil like we can have the military channels. We can have military airplane channel and military tank channel, and you know, yeah. and we can also still do like the 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 reality television and historical fiction, et cetera. So, um, World War Two. And this is where, if you're asking sort of where my dissertation is going, is I'll be curious to see when we, you and I truly are old. Is World War II always going to continue to be the perennial it's always been? Or will it really be sort of reduced in history mm. and truly be almost not quite World War I-ish from the American memory, but something much smaller than it's always been in our, in mm. our lifetime? Um, and I don't know. I don't know yeah, the answer to that, yeah. but that's something I'll definitely look at. Um, yeah, so, so World War II is fascinating. Um, it is not, and that's what makes me laugh with your, your the original slogan. Was it all history all the time? Yeah, yeah. World War II is not all history. Um, and, and I would also add, you know, this is sort of my, when we first started our graduate programming, it was like, that was my original project. But that turned into the dissertation, mm -hmm. which was, you'd go to like a Barnes and Noble and it would be like history section. And most of it was World War Two. Yeah, yeah, it's like well, that's not all of history. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. That that that's sort of my horse in the in. in yeah, the I mean, race. I, th I think you make a great point about you know the kind of interest in facts that is sometimes gets confused or presented as history. But you know, what a great way to repurpose and reuse a whole lot of documentary footage, yeah. right? I mean, kind of like you were saying, like you can have the one show about the airplanes. Well, now we can do it in color. You know, we can colorize the, all the black and white footage. 3D, CGI we, Yeah, we can make it CGI. We can make it 3D. We can have a little graphic panel on the side that gives you all the schematics and statistics of, uh, you know, the Tiger tank or whatever right. it is. And, and, and again, if any audience members, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. We're not in any way saying, like, it's not important to know what things weighed or, or how, why... You know, why the uh, consistency of the metal that was part of a tank was what we allowed a victory in a particular battle. Of course, that's all important. But there's a tendency to sort of get wrapped up in statistics and specs that really loses the larger sort of significance or the meaning sometimes. Right. You, you to, kind of forget to, that it's 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 one focus one specialty out of many right and and i've i've been super critical in this in this way with some some works uh, i've been writing and and i and actually we may have used this in something that actually got published but you know it's a term i refer to as a sort of a technological fetishism yeah you know yeah. where where it's this over <laughs> this overindulgence in like studying the tools that the the soldiers use and i put guns and grenades and 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 whatever in into that uh, term tools that we sort of get wrapped up in sort of, wow, isn't it amazing what they could do? And it's like, well, yeah, and it, it's cool. I mean, yeah, the, the eight-year-old in me mm -hmm. still thinks it's kind of cool that, you know, a, I don't know, a Gatlin gun can blow through, you know, a certain type of metal or whatever. Yeah, I guess that's cool. But I don't know. And, and call, call, me, call me stuck up, call me whatever. But I just think at a certain point you grow up and you're like, it's just, you know, like it's yeah, interesting yeah. that you created that. But, but look at the toy, look at the death toll, look at mm -hmm. the destruction it caused. Um, I think you have to always remember the consequences while you are fascinated by the inventions that we've come up with. Yeah.
So and that that that's my perspective on it. Um, but yeah, history History Channel is interesting. I've lost a little bit because I find the History Channel to be a bit uh, unwieldy. It seems like there's a twelve of them now, and and everything yeah, else. So yeah. I can't really speak authoritatively about History Channel in, in this uh, current time. But um, yeah, it, it's a fascinating it's a fascinating topic, uh, uh, and it and its own history the history of. What it would be the history of the historiography of the History Channel. Uh, well, I mean, that would be if multiple people had written about it before. Okay. Well, I, I guess they have. If we were going to construct a historiography about the History Channel, I mean, a, a lot of scholars that I've read who've written about the History Channel take a more critical and pedagogical uh, approach to it, using the History Channel in class and what are the pros and cons of doing right, that. Right. So, as far as I know, and again, audience, I might be wrong. There might be something out there that I've missed. I don't know that anybody, you know, has really written about the history of the History Channel from its inception uh, by A&E Networks in 93, except for like, you know, the the random, you know, company profiles that you'll find online or the Wikipedia right. article or anything like that, which well, is very limited. And that would be a, a huge project. Institutional oh, yeah, history yeah. plus the content, sure. decision making and, and the changing media landscape, yeah. But a great oral history, probably, because, you know, it's only 95. We're only well, talking about 20 years ago. If I, if I could be completely crass and generalizing, I would say that that ESPN book sold well, and I bet you a lot of the consumers who bought that thing are the same ones who watch these channels. Yeah, yeah. So, if, you know, it, it may not be as exciting about when a newscaster met Mark McGuire in the hallway <laughs> or whatever, but... You know, I mean, right, you right. probably be the same thing, especially, especially the subjects. Uh, I'm sorry, the chapters about the late '90s when maybe they did run into a Brokaw or a Spielberg or a Hanks who was in to do a documentary hosting gig or something for the channel. You probably could do that sort of oral history of running through the hallways and what what it was yeah, like and such. Yeah. Although these cable networks, they tend to be a closet, right? The size of a closet because it's uh, they're, yeah. they're they're run by a larger parent company. Right, and they don't really have the production facilities mm-hmm. that you don't imagine, you know, a history network building. It's probably just right, right. a room, and that's it, and that's it. Because Master Control takes care of all the distribution. Sure, the parent company, their sales staff and traffic will take care of all the uh, programming uh, needs and content. So, what what is a network? I mean, that comes to the other question. Yeah, I mean, all, all uh, the uh, all the you know company histories that that I've read in preparation for this episode kind of mentioned that there was you know a production team, and then there were some, although I even hesitate to say some historical consultants hired. It may have only been one, um, hmm. as far as I know. But yeah, I mean, we're talking about a very small operation yeah. here. So the History Channel was inaugurated in January 1995, as we've said, and by spring the following year of 1996, the New York Times was hailing the network as, quote, one of the most remarkable success stories in cable television, end quote. The network exceeded its subscription forecast of 4.5 million television homes by the end of its first year, winding up with a total of 8 million. So that's 8 million homes in which History Channel was available. By May 1996, when this Times article was written, the History Channel was available in 18 million homes, so vastly exceeding expectations. So these figures were surprising because at first blush, the content matter didn't really seem like something that would be appealing to large television audiences, especially in a competitive cable ecosystem. Now, at the time, because of recent federal regulations of uh, price increases, uh, cable operators were kind of loath to bring on more networks because there was a limit to how much uh, of a price increase they could charge their subscribers. 
And Andrew, one thing I would just want to jump in and question, and I don't know if we know the answer to this, but this expansion of reaching 18 million homes so quickly, mm. how much of that is A, A&E Networks holding their other networks ransom, saying you have yeah, to take that's history a good point. or we're going to pull A&E from it? And then uh, B, how much of it is um, – cable exploding to the point where cable distributors want to give more choice building tiers and so forth. Um, so they, they look like cable is a lot more, um, I don't want to say productive, but more robust in terms right. of what they were offering. So anything that was created, just grab it and throw it in so we can now say we have 100 channels. Yeah, you, yeah, right? that's so true. I mean, Those two things, I think. Yeah, so, I mean, there's it. definitely asterisks or, or, you know, avenues for further inquiry that, that we could pursue in questioning that 18 million number about how that actually happened. Right. One thing that the Times article that I'm citing here mentioned, and this by no means is a definitive explanation, but the article happened to mention that for some odd reason, a large number of cable operators had themselves been history majors in college. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it's coincidental and circumstantial. I just thought that was a really delicious detail to kind of include there. But sure. again, by no way does that that really say why the History Channel was uh, all of a sudden available to all these all these homes. Right. I'm just wondering if it had anything to do with the ownership rather than the actual content of the channel. They could have. Yeah. Been I mean, it totally could have been you know, a channel about something totally different, and they might still have yeah. expanded. Yeah. at the same rate so yeah i mean this is what we we're talking about before i i think history is far and wide so when the history channel started um or i should yeah the history channel started or even a and e they could have put on um the history of the suffrage movement they could have put on uh history of slavery they could have put on uh, the history of developing plastics, mm -hmm. right? But that's not what they did. I don't. I don't believe so. I'm not an no, authority. There may have been a plastic. There show. There may have been a plastic show. But point is, is that it's embraced because it's the history that those who are sort of dominant within the culture label and appreciate as history mm -hmm. that is mm -hmm. to be remembered and learned and they're interested in. So it's, it's, it's gendered history. It's uh racial, racialized history mm -hmm. to a certain extent. So, um, and I believe the New York times article you're referring to is the one by Bill Carter, who's the famous television critic who wrote like the late shift and, and all late night war stuff. And it always does television for New York times, you know, he notes about the the television operators, a lot of them being history majors. I, I saw that too. I thought that was interesting. And again, we don't want to say like, oh, it's because they were all history operators, so it's like a big conspiracy, and they all like yeah, yeah, no, or whatever. Nothing, nothing like but that. But it is familiar. It's yeah. sort of understood. It, it's oh yeah, I like this, right? Mm -hmm. well, and the subject that we go through school with, right? Well, but it's history. It, we always have a class in history. It seems as yes, uh, but it's under, not. Not just that it's history, it's what is composed of that history, what makes up that history course. And it's sort of the great, usually, traditionally, the great men in history thing, although I'm sure your kids will learn a different history and, and that sort of thing. So it's familiar. It's yeah. familiar, it's known, it's expected. Um, so I think there is that connection there that you're sort of preaching to the choir a little mm -hmm. bit. Now, again, I'm not. I'm sure if we look back at programming from 97 or 82, I'm sorry, 92, um, I'm sure there was some documentary on a sort of a, a marginalized group or a marginalized subject, 
But I think for the most part, it, it wasn't a coincidence that it became known as the Hitler Channel, right? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a, a false label uh, to the right, most part. Right. It was pretty applicable. Um, and we like that history, yeah. right? It makes us feel good. I mean, that's that's a great point and a great segue, I think, to um, talking about some of the demographics, the early demographics of the History Channel. So history was proving popular, um, but with demographics that had once been somewhat marginal to advertisers. So we don't really think about this group as being marginal, but at the time that they were. So like A&E before it, uh, the History Channel tapped into a demographic that was older, more educated, affluent, and male. So, I mean, we don't now in 2016 necessarily think of that as, I mean we think of that as as dominant but uh, at the time advertisers you know in, in, especially in the the network context it was all about 18 to 49 right so uh, cable opened up a possibility for catering to a, a different market niche audiences niche audience exactly so specifically it was men in the 35 to 64 year age range that seemed to be excited about history on cable so in the past as the uh, times article that i've been citing uh puts it quote network programmers had concluded that younger viewers simply have no interest in history uh end quote and the article went on to cite abc's 1988 extravagant miniseries war and remembrance uh which ended up being something of a ratings disappointment but that was on network television, where, again, the demographic, uh, the 18 to 49-year-olds, is really what mattered. Everything else was secondary uh, or maybe even non-existent. Uh, but cable networks like A&E and the History Channel were in a better position to base programming uh, to viewers over 30. And I just want to point out that this older male demographic continues to be history's meat and potatoes in the 2010s. Specifically, in 2011, history gained more middle-aged male viewers than any cable television network that wasn't ESPN, propelling it to one uh, from one of the top 20 rated cable networks to the top five. Now, the most recent numbers I have are for 2015. Uh, History Channel is still in the top 10, but it's been down 15% uh, in the 18 to 49 demo from 2014, so losing a little bit there. And it was seventh in total viewership with 1.51 million, which again was down 18% from 2014. So it looks like they may have hit a little bit of an ebb from the 2011 high. And this is also from the newer programming that they're doing, not what we've been talking about in terms sure. of the Hitler Channel sure. in the 1990s, right? Yeah, so, it, that, no, that's a great point um, and good segue. Uh, so the reason history executives and industry analysts claim was because in 2008, the network had rebranded itself. Uh, again, we said earlier, dropping the the and the channel from its name, becoming just history. Uh, and they focused on what network general manager at the time, Nancy Dubuk, maybe pronouncing that wrong, I'm very sorry, Uh, but anyway, what she called, quote, appointment viewing television, uh, end quote. What this meant was a turn to reality and scripted programs. You had Ice Road Truckers, which set uh, ratings records for the network, the hugely successful 2012 miniseries Hatfields and McCoys, which starred Kevin Costner and Bill Paxton, won a couple Emmys. Uh, And then, of course, uh, the History Channel has continued its success with scripted drama. Uh, Hatfields and McCoys uh, kind of started this trend, but uh, the fingerprint from that miniseries is definitely on Vikings, which uh, actually aired their first, uh, was their first scripted series as opposed to a miniseries. Uh, And it delivered 6 million viewers during its premiere episode and averaged around 2 million watching live per episode over the next three seasons. Since then, it's kind of declined a little bit, but still 
still vastly popular show on cable television for the History Channel. And more recently, of course, there was the remake of the 1977 miniseries Roots, which was simulcast on History, A&E, and Lifetime, uh, which I've recently read managed to deliver between 4 and 5 million viewers per episode, despite heavy competition with uh, NBA coverage. And so History Channel's uh, success over the past five to seven years in producing what Dubuck called the male version of romance television seems to have proved to viewers and advertisers alike that, quote, uh, as Dubuck says, history was a great alternative to sports in attracting upscale men, end quote. So we've already talked about the maleness of history a little bit. I don't know if you guys have any further thoughts on that, the idea that to some extent, the History Channel is a, a, a competition or at least an alternative to ESPN, that that's, that, that's kind of the, the, the male trend in programming is, you know, you have sports or you have history. The idea that history itself provides a kind of male equivalent of romance television. Yeah, no, I, I agree wholeheartedly with it. I mean, yeah. if it's, it's for, for men, it's sports or war or uh, stories of great accomplishment that they can either revere or sort of vicariously live through. Um, you know, it's like the old, it's the old, you know, argument against lifetime. You know, there'll be people, small minority, who'll be like, oh, why do we need a women's channel? You mm -hmm. know, it's like, well, there's there's already men's channels, and they're called History Channel and Military Channel and Sports Channel and this channel and that channel. So it's already there. Um I would say I love that quote, the romance, romance version of, uh, from, yeah, for, yeah. for men, because it is, it's, it's, it's being lost in a world. It's getting swept up. There's also the other part, and I can't speak to this as well. Cause, cause I, I kind of feel it in myself a little bit, like certain shades of it, but I can't, I couldn't quite pin it down to articulate it, but I think of, and I don't know if Steve, you're this type of baseball fan, but like the stats baseball fan, hmm. like, like there's just something with certain dudes who are like, they get so wrapped up into it in that they're comforted by I, well I guess I have pinpointed I, I do tend to read more nonfiction than I do fiction and I don't know if it's a dude thing or a personal thing but there's something about I think about dudes that are like well this really happened like this really happened like and I know what it was right, right. either because I want to know or in case I would need to know but there's like a practicality to it and I think that's with the baseball stats of like well this is this is the numbers like there's no like he did more than the other guy or he did this many in a game. And so I think that is part of the allure of this type of history, which is mm -hmm. it's not it, I mean, sometimes it's it's like, well, what if he had charged four hours earlier than he did? Would he have lost the battle? There mm -hmm. are definitely some what if stuff and some some soft corners to it, some fuzziness. But um, but a lot of it's more like like, uh, yeah, I was watching the channel. I said, oh, did you see that show about? Yeah, they flew. Do you guys know those guys flew, you know, seven hours? And yeah, they uh, they had no sleep and. There's three of the bombs were supposed to work, but they didn't only one of them. And it was only because he he knew how to turn the wrench when it malfunctioned right. that, you know, like they love that stuff. Like, yeah. like they talk about, oh, and that's sort of the anecdotal sort of history. Yeah, that's what you tell at parties, right? Exactly. Yeah. exactly. I, I, or the bar, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. I think your parallel to sports is great, though, because if you think about the maleness of sports, there is competitiveness. You hear about the NFL being compared to the gridiron and the strategy involved of the troops and moving them down the field right. strategically. And George Carlin does a great play oh, on yeah, this between yeah, yeah. football and baseball. The long bomb and all that. Right, yeah. exactly. That I think that so much about war tends to be about strategy, outthinking your opponent, uh, the competitiveness, the survival, 
all of these what ifs, the you know, just the strategy involved that it stereotypically is a male thing, right? right? At least that's what has been documented in history, and it might be a limited documentation of it, certainly. And I'm not saying women don't do this, but historically, that's what we have to rely back on. And I think that's what the History Channel played into. Right. So so this has become popular, and it's sort of a sub-interest of mine. But like again, I asked them, like, what else could they have started showing on that channel? Another thing they could have done, I don't believe they did, although it almost would have fit, is why didn't they do a you know seven hour uh, album by album documentary about the Beatles? That's history, mm-hmm. you know what I mean. But they don't. They they they're this military strategy. It's VH1, strat- I think. V- right? Yeah, exactly yeah. right. But but that's not you know we don't immediately go oh that's history right, that's right. male history right? right. And and this gets into this will actually get into another episode that you guys will hear at at some point. But you know, a, a subgenre for me is is sort of the alternative histories that people write about the Beatles, and to a lesser extent, some people even write it about the Monkees. Mm. And this idea of like, well, what if they'd stayed together? What if they had done? You know, and they talk about like, what would nineteen seventy Beatles, mm. nineteen seventy one Beatles album look like? What would a nineteen seventies Monkees album look like? You know, that kind of stuff. So again, that's all huge area of quote unquote proper history that. Pop music, both guys and girls like. There's no reason it couldn't be "quote unquote" male history, and it is. But like, I think your reaction, like, "Oh, that's VH1." You yeah. know, what I mean, you're right. It's, it's not kind of tongue in cheek reaction. No, I know, but yeah. I know, yeah, no, but it, it does play to the niche. But it's but you didn't cable right, but you, right, and but you you rightly so didn't yeah. go like, well, that's that's milt that that's a History Channel. Like yeah. that's yeah. maybe it's A and E. Maybe it's the biography of Paul McCartney. You know, maybe that's A and E. That fits into because because Lord knows of a certain age, certain uh, that demographic love the Beatles, love the Beatles, couldn't get enough of the Beatles. You ask any of the, the videos these days, you know, kids in the streets in New York or whatever, would be like, I have no idea who those people are, but you know, there's some people of a certain generation they love them. Um, but that's what I'm talking about. Is sort of what are we calling history? And 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 there's certain people, I'd say certain dudes of a certain age. It's like, well, well, that's history. So if you're on ABC, NBC, then yes, the Beatles will fit into your history. If you're on the History Network in a very niche landscape, you know TCM, Turner Classic Movies, they're doing the Hollywood documentaries mm-hmm. on the old actors. VH1 Classic, they're doing the pop music of the, you know, the history of pop oh, music. Yeah. So I, this might be just history trying to carve out a niche that nobody else is doing because they need the advertisers, and, right? And it comes back to that. And I'll also say, you just reminded me, this goes back to, I think, one of your original questions. I think the other thing that kind of kind of hurts them or changes the landscape is that history you mentioned at some point like history sort of felt like it or a certain type of history felt like maybe it it wasn't so popular i would argue that by today history history of anything is so popular Mm -hmm. we all we do you know downton abbey this uh, i think i was just talking about ratings decline oh ratings decline for the network but i think that yeah no it takes away its uniqueness in that sense because almost you can watch history almost anywhere now i mean uh uh, we've talked about this a couple episodes. I apologize, audience, but like, uh, did you love the feel of the original Star Wars? Guess what? Here's the history lesson of the new movie. Mm. The new movie is a history lesson, essentially, for the you know the original one. So it's like history just surrounds us. We're soaking yeah. in it, nostalgia, all the subcategories, in the sense of like, yeah, we need a history channel or. What is it? History? That's just a, it's just history, which is I think is so stupid because doesn't that sound like yeah, it very we're, we're o- no we're over, like we're history. Yeah, we're over. Yeah. We're done. Like, there's no point <laughs> yeah. to continue. But like, you know what I mean? Like, it's not as unique because we can do history anytime, anywhere. I can mm-hmm. any any time on the internet. I can read. Like, we were. I don't know if you saw my post. Like, 
Someone just posted the. Uh, they found the. They're trying to fix the original prototype of the rare. Uh, oh yeah, Nintendo Sony PlayStation yeah. game thing that was only a prototype, and I can read the entire history of that. Like history is just we're soaking in it. Yeah. So. Yeah. But again, uh, speaking of context, I feel like you know you you might or someone might make the same argument about you know, some other kind of history that isn't necessarily military history, right? Like, I'm thinking, you know, for example, just, you know, throwing something out there is, you know, the intersectional identity of a family, a Polish family living in Germany in the late 1930s or something like that. Mm -hmm. Some kind of, you know, history of social experience, which may end up on, you know, oxygen or lifetime or something like that, because it's a history about families. And that is, coded as female, right? right. So history, uh, to kind of jump off something Steve was saying, well, and and John, you both were kind of saying this, it has a specific idea, conception of what it is, and that's, oh, well, we got all these World War II documentaries lying around. Uh, oh, men kind of, you know, seem to like cars and technology and sort of thing. So that's going to be history, whereas other types of history, like, you know, the Beatles or Star Wars or my mythical Polish family um, is just going to be on another well, network. And, and how much does political economy play into that, where if you work for history and you have that idea of that Polish family documentary mm-hmm. or you know, whatever you want to call it, you pitch that and A&E Networks says, well, no, give that over to Oxygen. Or yeah, li- yeah. I, who, I think they own Lifetime, right? Lifetime, yeah. Lifetime Oxygen's an NBC right, uh, property. That, yeah. that they say, no, give that to Lifetime. And yeah. they don't allow that, right? And so right. you have that right. as well. It's not just the producers or the people who run the network, but in this parent company – I'm sure they're going to split properties and say Lifetime could really use that because mm-hmm. they're trying. They're worried about their ratings yeah. as well, right, and trying to find the, the audience for it. So there's a lot of different barrier, barriers well, that could affect it. Yeah, and this comes back to your, your truth, although it crushes my boyhood dreams of, of television, which is it's a closet with a master control, yeah. and mm-hmm. the, sale, the sales and marketing as gatekeepers going, well, where can we get – they think in terms of demographics, really, and profits. Mm-hmm. So it's like – well, what is this thing? Well, this seems to be a war thing. Okay, well, we have a channel that's devoted to ages 55 through mm-hmm. 64, uh, and they seem to really like these things. Let's put it there, you know, versus yeah, something else. Yeah. And, and so I'm not calling them inherently bad or good. It's just that's the role that they're playing and in that they're not thinking like, well, Andrew seems to be a sensitive, thinking person who enjoys history and and really uh, thinks about the emotional consequences and also the intellectual challenges of the battlefield mm-hmm. commander. Now they're like, Andrew lives in Jersey. He makes this much money. He works this job. Yep. He's got two point five right. kids. Blah blah blah. Okay, put but, it there. But just yeah. think about that. So any networks has all of this content, but they want to brand each network as their own individual identity right right so it's not as if we could just say oh here's a and e networks let's look at all the shows they produce it's no 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 what's under the lifetime network mm. oh what's under the history so they're yeah. compartmentalizing their content which i find to be so uh archaic in this day and age where everything is kind of found via streaming and through what we call like the netflix library of looking at here's a yeah. genre of documentaries what is it and instead they're saying no no this documentary is lifetime this documentary right. is history yeah. channel so they're finding niche categories right to places it seems it seems to echo your point about regional versus local sports networks right where it's you know is it really regional or is it really niche if it's you know all controlled by this kind of top down yeah yeah this distribution i yeah I, i agree with that but i would also say is that the whole point of the search engine and algorithms is it's learning from our own search behavior so the window narrows and narrows and narrows which is i don't know about you but like my netflix unfortunately i want to see everything but i never do it's like because you looked for these last three variables 
mm-hmm. we're only showing you this right yeah so so in a sense you will only see those things that you kept downloading over and over and over or at least uh, better chance so. right or it just takes a lot longer to find the things because i think you have to just keep digging and or just digging oddball thing right? things that don't match your demographic but surprise surprise you might be interested right. in you know yeah right the computer knows you better than you know yourself exactly or your or your spouse <laughs> my spouse does know me better than <laughs> so what we might call history's dramatic or reality turn has of course earned a fair share of critics asking essentially wither history history channel uh, in 2011 as the network was celebrating its record-breaking ratings and top five status forbes contributor brad lockwood charged that the turn to trash picking monsters aliens and conspiracies quote proves the vast potential of stretching a niche for the sake of ratings, end quote. This was echoed in part by Cracked.com's wonderful satire of the History Channel, complete with explanatory graphics. Uh, We'll post a link to this online. I think uh, Jonathan may have originally shared it with me a few years ago. Uh, But the article begins this way. I love this quote. Uh, Quote, the History Channel is a network, a television network, that was originally intended to air programs about history. But then the producers shrugged and said, eh, so uh, again, <laughs> talking about like the, the flattening of uh, cable networks and what used to be this kind of really targeted and niche uh, programming uh, uh, strategy turns into something that is more broadly or has a little bit more of a broad appeal, maybe it's a little bit cheaper to produce, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So the short answer that I give is that uh, history that used to be on the History Channel was or has been moved at various times to the network subsidiaries. We talked about this a little bit uh, earlier. Uh, These include H2, which is formerly History International, and also the Military History Channel, which is, you know, if you didn't think that History Channel proper had enough military and war documentaries on it, you can move over to the Military History channel and of course other A&E networks have their fair share of historical programming and documentaries as well Um, but anyway despite his tongue-in-cheek approach uh, Lockwood of Forbes magazine provided a more nuanced explanation for history's relative lack of history noting by way of an interview with uh, tvbythenumbers.com co-founder Bill Gorman that history's turn towards reality and scripted drama was par for the cable programming course so what we've been talking about this whole time Sci-Fi, Bravo, MTV, and a number of other cable channels were all incorporating such programs into their niche portfolios. We might as well equally ask what happened to the music on MTV. I mean, this is something that you hear echoed you know, for at least the past 15 years. It's More become reality. The Learning Channel, TLC. Yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, is now, uh, what's her name? The, uh, the child dance coach. Um, honey. Yeah, Honey, honey Boo Boo. Yeah. So, uh, again, programming trends uh, kind of uh, insisting or uh, pushing uh, niche programming to something a little bit different. Still incorporating the history, though. I mean, the argument can always be made that Pawn Stars or, I guess, even Ice Road Truckers has a little bit of history to it. You know, when you're on Pawn Stars, you're talking about history, but you're talking about history as seen or viewed through artifacts. Um, so a little bit different, a little bit more Antiques Roadshow maybe, but uh, still there are those who would argue that there's history there still. I mean, what do you guys make of that? Yeah, I mean, I agree. It's the tired old argument of people sort of bemoaning or expecting that a channel or a media product is just always going to be there or always be the same. Um, it's also a weird combination of one or two companies owning a multitude of channels 
and wanting to get the most bang for their buck by sort of programming against uh, offering different programming options but it's also competing against each other and like i said if if you know it was the learning channel which i think for a while was sort of freak show programming right it was like the tallest this the shortest that the widest this the widest Mm -hmm. that um, they haven't been anything about learning in decades. Right. So it's like the learning channel, the history channel, the science channel, the discovery channel. Once one of them go like, oh, but we're going to run the show about little people or we're going to sh- run the show about this uh, oddity or this, you know, wherever you want to sort of in a classy way frame it. But mm. that's really what you're doing then. And it gets ratings, you know, that your bosses or your profit folks are going to be like, well, you know, we need we need a different regime here. We need to get mm. in on this. Um, and I think people are just, they don't want to get locked in. I think that's what you see as well with the, well, we're no longer the learning channel. We're just TLC. We're no longer, and we see this with other, um, uh, industries, right? We are no longer Kentucky fried chicken. We are just KFC, you know, it, it, it loose. We are no longer Domino's pizza. We are Domino's, right? It loosens you up. There are no more restrictions Mm. on the industry you can produce. Um, I wish I can't remember what it is, but there is right now there's some weird combination of two businesses that I would never have expected. And they're doing a product together. I can't remember. It's like books. It's like books in Kentucky Fried Chicken or something. It's some mm. weird thing. So once you loosen those reins, then it's just whatever's getting ratings and, yeah. and you can you can uh, sort of utilize all your assets to the, the greatest extent. But again, I say that within the context of history's never been bigger history's all over the place mm. it's not like mm-hmm. it's not like oh there's no history left on history channel and thus i have no access to history anymore it's yeah. like yeah it's not yeah. there but it's everywhere else I, I think it also is the evolution of cable uh what was thought of as this um huge expansion first in the 80s then in the 90s uh, you can only survive so long before you change so just like capital always has to expand we see horizontal integration in jonathan's example uh, i think you look at tv land it started out as well black and white shows right it was a kind yeah. of nick at night extended now they're clearly playing to a baby boomer audience and they have a whole slate of original programs in fact i don't even know how many classic shows they still have left they've totally changed and you see with mu- uh, music television mtv dropping the music uh sci-fi used to be sci-fi yeah right? like science you can't fiction. trademark that what's that you can't trademark sci-fi because it's a it's a but, but they ch- commonly but, no. That's why they did it. Oh, I, I wonder why, why do they change yeah. to SYFY? I thought is that helping them expand yeah, you can, to you, other you, things? That you, you can you can own SYFY. You can't own sci-fi because yeah. it's in common usage. Oh, okay. Because I just wonder, like like Jonathan said, they just wanted to change the rules, and by dropping some of these specifics, like the Learning Channel now it's just being TLC. Well, now we can do anything yeah. we want, and I I wondered, it's still called history, but. I yeah. guess, like you said, with Pawn Stars, you could really make an argument that anything is historical. Where I think Pawn Stars, it's really about the people running the store and, yeah, yeah. and sort of the customers who are quirky and bringing these things they found. And, um, you know, I, history is almost kind of a, a side piece to some mm-hmm. of that. Uh, so that's all the time we have for today's episode of Inside the Box. I want to thank Jonathan and Steve for indulging my interest in history on television and contributing a lot of great insights uh, to today's show. So for all of us here at Inside the Box, I'm Andrew Salvati. Thanks a lot for joining us, and we will see you next time. We're history. Oh. <laughs>